Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. Coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. In this episode... We're asking if the next recession is coming in 2020, why Ericsson is our favourite 5G stock, and picking the two stocks we'd like to add to our market-beating shortlist in 2020. So guys, welcome to the first podcast of 2020, first podcast in a new decade. Did you have a nice break? No. (laughs) (laughs) Starting the year off on a good foot, Rory, I like it. (laughs) It was supposed to be a lovely break, it didn't turn out that way. Do you want to elaborate? Uh, you have to elaborate. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, I, I went to Morocco. Nice. Um, it was very hard to get a drink, but it was very easy to get food poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was my that was my break. So, <laughs> right, say no more. <laughs> Emmett, I hope your break was a little bit nicer than I was, that. yeah, it was far more traditional than Irish, <laughs> sitting at home, eating too much and watching TV. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my Anthony Bourdain-esque adventurism got the best of me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like, my girlfriend was there being like, oh, don't know about that. And I was like, come on, it'd be grand. <laughs> yeah. The locals are eating it, should be fine. <laughs> so it, had it been perfect, what would you grade Moroccan food out of 10, if 10 is the best you've ever had? I was genuinely disappointed. I, yeah. I, I really do like my food and I was really expecting a lot and I found it just not to be up there. You kind of gave me a warning. You've been living in Yeah, I, I lived, I, this is just a personal preference. I wouldn't be crazy on Middle Eastern food yeah. um, personally, but um, yeah, I never got food poisoning from it though either, so I think your your opinion would be yeah. skewed a bit. Was yeah, it mostly lamb-based? Very lamb-based. Right. Um, and yeah, very tagine-based. Yeah. That's kind of their whole thing. Right. I kind of thought there'd be a bit more... Um, yeah, variety. Variety going around, but... Yeah, look, look I, considering I was poisoned, I won't. <laughs> yeah. I was, a solid one. Yeah, that's the, that's the asterisk beside me. Moroccan <laughs> food. If that hadn't happened, I'm sure it'd be higher. Yeah. yeah. So, um, first podcast of 2020, and I think it's probably fair to say already this year the news hasn't been great on a kind of a global level. Um, the US-China trade war is still kind of rolling on. There's been rising tensions in the Middle East between the US and Iraq and Iran, um, and there's been more political and social instability in places like the UK and Hong Kong. And then that doesn't even take into account, Emmett, that we're moving into a US election year this yeah. year, which, you know, is is typically a, a kind of an unstable and volatile time. So, you know, as an investor sitting here at the, the start of 2020, what, should we be worried or should we be concerned mo- moving into this year? So uh, the 2010s ended as the only decade since at least 1850. Uh, without entering or experiencing one day of recession. Wow. So that's, you know, when you look at where we've just come from since 2010, I think the world is awaiting some kind of downturn. Yeah. Whatever label that downturn gets remains to be seen. Recession, correction, depression. Yeah. Uh, or any of the other labels you can give some a downturn. But it has been the longest dry spell. It's been the longest bull market um, or, or at least it's been the first decade where there hasn't been a downturn. So I think uh, the question 
about the election is really, uh, if I can paraphrase it, like when might one expect the next downturn? Yeah, because and it's always coming. And I think yeah, that's something people forget. It's always coming. That, and like, yeah. That's one of the biggest things you have to make peace with as an investor mm. is that a downturn is coming. It's just a matter of when and by how much. And it's not to be feared, actually. I really believe downturns, if you are fortunate enough to be in the springtime or summer of your life, there's something to be looked forward to because the great businesses that we three talk about and analyse are suddenly going on sale. And uh, so uh, so it's changing your mindset entirely. But I I suspect, like, I do think that the year ahead, 2020, is going to be one of volatility. There's going to be a lot of, um, I suppose, pent-up expectations that kind of manifest themselves and shares going up and down on the most minor of news. But I'm of the mind, and really this is crystal ball stuff, so it doesn't really matter, but the next downturn won't happen until 2021. Okay. And there's two reasons why I believe that's the case. And the first is that the US economy has entered a recession only once, or only one time during the fourth year of a presidential cycle. Okay. However, nine of the 14 recessions have occurred after an election. Okay. So the first piece of data is if you look at all the recessions to date, the vast majority of them began the year after uh, presidential elections. Yeah, so which would be 2021 in our case. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And the second reason is that uh, that old yield curve that we discussed in not too too far past, we had um, the, the US yield curve historically inverts, as we spoke about, on average 22 months before a recession begins. Mm. And then it steepens and it's already kind of inverted. Yeah. So if you look at the yield curve, which is a very uh, boring curve with a lot of data about returns and bond yields, it's just started to invert. So it indicates that something not altogether good is coming, but not immediately. It's okay. gonna, so I, they're the two main reasons that I believe that 2020 will be one of kind of uh, trepidation mm. um, and will manifest, as I said, in volatility. And 2021, if a downturn hasn't occurred, I'd be of the mind that, you know, let's ready ourselves for some bargains. So as the most experienced investor in the room and oldest, if you don't mind me saying so, um, you've, you've kind of, you've probably been through one or two recessions, definitely the 2008 one and oh, I yeah. think the dot com as well. For sure. And, and kind of, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how, you know, it's all well and good kind of talking before the fact and, yeah. you know, preparing yourself. But, you know, when you're seeing your stocks plummet like that, what, what, what is it like and how do you It's horrible. Of- I mean, yeah, so I have invested in two out of the three 50% downturns. Yeah. So I've seen it twice. The first one I lost my shirt, which is probably a podcast on its own right. <laughs> but, um, uh, and the second I was ready, not because I expected it, but because I knew the behaviours to expect for myself. And, you know, uh, when you read about um, disaster management, you can, you're ready a room or a house for, or, or a plane full of people as to what to do if a disaster strikes. Yeah. But the reality is when a disaster strikes, very often you'll forget what you've been told. Like first aiders so often forget what they so diligently were trained in yeah. in the disasters and pedestrian first aiders, not professionals. So the fact is when a market turns down and you, you look at your brokerage account and everything is red, uh, has gone down below what you paid. It's really uncomfortable. You you question everything you've done, every decision you've made. You question even becoming an investor in the first place. And if you can absolutely double down and cool down and remember that 
you loved these businesses. Rory has repeatedly said over the last couple of years of us doing podcasts, you know, well, if you liked it at 50, you should yeah. like it at 40. And, you know, that's the, that is the truth of it. Yeah. Like we look at businesses because we believe their very long term perspective is something that is going to be that horizon of that business is going to be way, way more attractive than it is today. And and yeah, downturns occur. And and, and I did find in the second 50% downturn in 2008, um, I actually was enjoying it. Do you ever hear that expression, you know, if you have a fight with a pig and you're rolling around in mud um, and you're just having a roll around punching a pig, it comes a point where you realise the pig's enjoying it. <laughs> well... <laughs> What? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was in the uh, in the first fight uh, with my own uh, mentality in the year 2000, I was in pain. In the second, in 2008, I was enjoying the downturn. I loved seeing these stuff <laughs> where the world was actually curling in pain yeah. and saying, what the heck is happening? I was like the pig having a fight in mud. I was kind of enjoying it. Uh, so moving on to some more recent news then. So we're already a few days into 2020, but one of the stocks from our showroom has been acquired. and um, The Habit Burger Grill, it was announced on Monday, is being bought by Yum Brands. That's the parent company of such fast food giants as KFC and Taco Bell. Um, the deal is worth about uh, $375 million, about $14 per um, habit share. Um, Rory, what do you think about this? Uh, I'm going to start by giving a pitch to a TV show that I just started watching on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have seen it yet. It's called Million Dollar Menu. No. no. It's a BBC production. I hadn't seen it when it was originally on the BBC. But it's a, and it probably won't be on Netflix for US customers. So so I think it's an Irish-UK thing. But yeah. uh, it's essentially like the Dragon's Den for new restaurant concepts. Oh, wow. It's, it's quite an interesting thing. Like they, they have... Uh, new restaurateurs or like people usually have kind of food stalls or even like very small pop-up restaurants pitch a new concept to a bunch of restaurant investors and then they go and they have the food and they see how service goes and then they decide whether they want to invest in the business to try and make it kind of I love that big idea. national brand okay and I thought it was re- like some of the insights you get from these like when we look at restaurants we look at a lot of things like same source sales and you mm. know uh, profitability margins and all this kind of thing but you got there was some very kind of I suppose when a company's that small there's a lot more finicky things to think about like for example uh, do you need a proper chef there uh, every day because that's a cost increase or uh, is your main product going to fluctuate in price quite a lot so for example People love pasta restaurants because they're, you know, the price of pasta is going to be the price of pasta pretty much flour and water. Sure, yeah. Whereas things like uh, chicken prices fluctuate up and down quite a lot, as does beef stock. So that kind of thing was quite an insightful kind of look into what makes a successful restaurant from a very small startup stage to yeah. to becoming a profitable enterprise in over the long term. Yeah. So I thought anyone who is interested in that kind of stuff, I'd highly recommend that show. Definitely. Um, as you were speaking, I've just added to my Netflix list here a million <laughs> pound menu. Million pound menu. Yeah. yeah. There's only a couple of episodes, so I hope they do more of them and they um, they pump out more. And we've seen here locally restaurants that we particularly liked once offs, um, and as they started to scale and expand, they lost that sparkle of mm. magic, the yeah. flavor, the food, the quality. It just somehow, like you could just perceive a change once they started to spread their wings. Yeah. I also think there's huge like there's such an appetite now for new concepts and new ideas yeah. people are getting a bit yeah. sick I mean burgers will always be there but yes, like, I think yeah. people are looking for something a bit fresh and unique That's um, right, even yeah. just an experience the word Instagrammable comes up an awful <laughs> lot in that show really? yeah they're like the investors really want food that people are going to take photos off and post on their Instagram that's wow. like yeah. their, one of their big things they look for 
but I digress. Let's talk about the habit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the habit was a chain of around two hundred and sixty burger joints over in the west coast of America. Um, we've had them in the app for just over two years. The I think we had we had them at like fifteen dollars yeah. thirty or something. So this acquisition is going to be going to come down as a loss for us. Mm. Um, it's unfortunate, but look, it happens. Uh, bought out by Young Brands for three hundred seventy-five million. Young Brands are a thirty-one billion dollar company, mm. so this is very very small for them. Um, but yeah, I, I I did an insight about them during the week, and I thought you know when we looked at the habit originally. What we were trying to kind of figure out was one thing. It was one real big question in our head, which was that there's a very similar business, not based based on the East Coast rather than the West Coast, which is also publicly traded, which gets an awful lot more um, airtime. I say, I would say, in the financial world, and that was Shake Shack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Shake Shack was valued at like six times mm-hmm. what the habit is, even though they have pretty much the same amount of locations, make pretty much around the same revenue. Now, Shake Shack, in fairness, had was a slightly bit more profitable company and was growing revenue slightly faster, but like the difference in the valuation was just insane. So, yeah, yeah. So the starting thought process was something's gone wrong here. Either the Shake Shack is massively overvalued or the Habit Burger and Grill is massively undervalued. And it's probably a bit of both. And part of the investment thesis was we, we reckon this is going to correct itself over the course of a couple of years. Yeah. And it was quite volatile stock. It went up and down yeah. very a, a lot, but in the end, we're being bought out now, and we'll never figure out whether it mm. was uh, yeah. truly undervalued. Um, but yeah, just some of the numbers that we found with the Shake Shack, and this was only this is only recent. Now. This is just from when the acquisition happened. Uh, so they basically have the exact same amount of restaurants. Each habit location is currently valued at around one point four million, whereas each Shake Shack is valued at eight point six million. Wow. Uh, so just for another, throw another company for comparison. Each Chipotle is valued at nine point four million. Mm. So I mean, there's such a difference in yeah. valuation yeah. Is there, isn't there? Like you really can't get into your head why. Yeah. I kind of had to think about it, and there's two things I think that we kind of didn't take into account, which maybe we should have taken into account. Uh, which is one: the Shake Shack has a really good founding story. Do you know the founding yeah. story of Shake Shack? No, actually, I know the Habits uh, founding story, but I'd be keen to hear the Shake Shack. The Shake Shack. So the guy, Danny Mayer, starts a basic hot dog cart, essentially, yeah. in Madison Square Park, gets becomes really popular, queues around the corner, and then just started slowly building into into restaurants and like it, wow. he only started 15 years ago now it's a but that's a little like the habit the habit was a burger uh, truck burger truck yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but a long time much longer ago wasn't it, it was yeah, like it was 60s yeah. Or oh, was, that's right that yeah. is true yeah so I feel like the Shake Shack had a better founding story which is really important if you yeah. ever read the four the Scott Galloway book he talks about how yeah. important founding stories are for stock price appreciation because people buy into them and they get repeated ad nauseum yeah. um, and it just it gives people a sense of what they're buying into yeah. more than yeah. if you have a kind of boring and nameless yeah exactly yeah. and the other thing is most Shake Shacks or like if you google Shake Shack New York they're everywhere yeah. they're absolutely everywhere yeah. including on Broadway right yeah. in the heart of the financial district yeah. and if you have all the bankers in New York walking by queues going out the door of Shake Shack every day that is going to have an impact on how they start valuing companies whether they want it to yeah. or not yeah. I love right. that theory that re- <laughs> I love yeah. that one that repetitive yeah. trigger will definitely make you think differently about something like we yeah. talk about it all the time if you see a business that people are going to all the time that, that they love yeah. you do start thinking of it in much more positive terms even mm. if you particularly might not like the product or something For like sure. that so yeah so those are two things that I think may have contributed to that um, look the deal is done now 
Yeah. Is Shake Shack or Riot though, maybe? <laughs> but, you, you know, it probably spin off of the point you made where like having a Shake Shack on Broadway or Bryan Park or whatever is, is there for all to be seen. I wonder if the geography of The Habit being a West Coast brand somewhat valued it less. You know, it's the extreme mm, example. Like yeah. you wouldn't see Habit within, I think, like probably 3,000 miles of the middle of New York City. So yeah. I, I'd say that figured as well. I was, I really felt The Habit was, was sold for a bargain. Yeah, it was, especially because they just kicked off a big franchise plan. Things were opening up in China, which seemed to be going quite well. They were talking about opening Cambodia. Yeah. There was some demand for it there. Yeah. But they were like, they were just on the cusp of kind of trying the new thing. Um, And all these best burger awards. I I mean, apparently the burgers were delicious. Apparently. They did, the management team did seem very sluggish though. Did you not find that? Like it just, every year it seemed to be like, oh yeah, we said we'd do that last year. We'll do it this year. Definitely (laughs) this year. Yeah. Like they didn't really seem to be as... I don't want to say ambitious, but they just didn't have the kind of go out and do it attitude yeah, that yeah. Other, other chains seem to do. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so look, we're locking a loss for that. That's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Yeah. Is it the 12th or 13th stock acquired from our, our list? I'm losing track now. Yeah. I think yeah, it's around 13. 13. What did we... It's over 10. <laughs> no, Tiffany was 12 and I think yeah. okay. was 13, yeah. Um, so that's the Habit Burger Grill being acquired by Yum Brands. Um, we're going to move on now to the company we never talk about. Rory, we're talking about another company in our showroom, FedEx. Yeah, so start this off by talking about something we talk about here quite a lot, which is the pick and shovel play. And for investors who don't know what that is, it's when there's a trend going on, usually quite an explosive one, but it might be too high risk for you to go directly into that. But what you can do is you can invest in companies that through their technology or through the services they provide benefit from the growth in the trend. Okay. And the name itself, Pick and Shovel Play, comes from the gold rush in California where all these speculators were going off trying to find gold in the mountains. But the companies that really did well were the guys selling the picks and shovels. Yeah. yeah. It didn't matter to them whether anyone found gold as long as people were trying. That was good enough for them. Um, So a couple of good examples of pick and shovel plays uh, cryptocurrency was the big mania a couple of years ago. A lot of people bought Bitcoin. A lot of people lost a lot of money. Whereas there was a couple of companies, and NVIDIA was one that kind of sticks out, which because of their graphic chips being used in the process of mining Bitcoin, yeah. did very well. Now, they, they also had a bit of a sell-off when cryptocurrencies collapsed because yeah. people were selling. There was became a third market for the graphics chips when companies were selling them off and so forth. Marijuana one was I was looking at as well. Mm. Pick and show play for marijuana and mm. Scott's Miracle Grow might be an interesting one. <laughs> I know is that is that a product in America? Yeah, Scott's Miracle Grow is oh, a, yeah. like it's a like forty year old company that yeah. sells mostly kind of fertilizer and things like that. <laughs> but they have a very small hydroponics business, which if they ever legalize marijuana in the US, which it looks like they will, yeah, they have great route to capturing big market share. They've got yeah. huge just <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> So that was another example of pick and shovel play. And like FedEx is definitely a pick and shovel play. Yeah. Because yeah. we're talking about e-commerce being the future. And you would think, therefore, that shipping logistics was going to be a major player in that. And there's only three big worldwide shipping logistics businesses. So pick the one you think is mm. best run, mm-hmm. invest in that or invest in all three. And you're bound to do well. And that's not been the case at all. Like UPS yeah. and FedEx have both yeah, been yeah. pretty much flat since we added so are Amazon going to destroy FedEx? It's the kind of the giant question. They might destroy... Well, you see, they can't fully destroy FedEx because 
other retailers aren't going to give Amazon their business. Yeah, that's true. Nor their yeah. customer nor data. Nor their logistics, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. So they'll have to go to someone. Yeah. They won't go to Amazon anyway, yeah. even if they are offering something a bit cheaper and better. Yeah. But uh, yeah, some looking back on FedEx, there's been a couple of things that have just, like when you look at them, you just go, oh yeah, I can see why that stock's not performing very well now. Mm. Um, they're a $42 billion business, operate pretty much all over the world. They generate revenue of about seventy billion last year, so it's a big, massive cash generator. But unfortunately, it's a very low margin business, and there's some elements of it that are more profitable. But on a mixed gross margin basis, which is that first line of profitability that you look for, they're only keeping about twenty cents of every dollar, which doesn't give you an awful lot of room to maneuver further down mm. the uh, the profit and income the income statement. Um, and it's been a business that's been just very slowly in decline as well. Like. It, not necessarily in terms of revenue. Revenue continues to grow, but in terms of inc- operating income and eventual profit, like in 2018, the business generated net income of 4.5 billion from 65 million in revenue. Last year, they only brought in half a billion, okay. and that was off a bigger revenue base. Now that's they've been investing heavily in the in the business, and they bought out a European operator called TNT a couple of years ago, which has been a big drag on on investment yeah. money. Mm. Now they really have to had pumped in a lot of money into that. But I'm kind of thinking that it may be at a good point now where it could become a kind of value buy. And it's gotten to the it's gotten to the point now where it looks like something that Warren Buffett would buy. And a couple of people have said, you know, he is big into shipping logistics companies, that it is a buyer candidate for him who's sitting on his... A lot of money. Well, <laughs> was I think $138 billion yeah. was the last one I read. Um, so in that sense, like, it's a company that has been subject to pretty much every potential uh, headwind you can think of, like yeah. recession, going to hurt them. Trade war, going to hurt them. Amazon. Uh, <laughs> Amazon, going to hurt them. There's so many things you could say are bad about this. I think that could be starting to get priced in a bit. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's been it's been totally, nearly totally flat for us in five yeah. years. It's become a bit more interesting at the moment, I think. I have three fast FedEx facts that have absolutely no bearing whatsoever. <laughs> Go for it. Are you ready for that? Yeah, I love it. Um, Wilson, the real Wilson, the volleyball from Castaway, was sold to a FedEx executive for $18,500, which to me sounds like a deal. Are you going to tell your Wilson story? The fact that Tom Hanks tweeted me and then everybody <laughs> laughed at me. Because, Maybe we'll save that for another podcast. Okay, I think well, that deserves well, a podcast. But anyway, that was a good buy to me. Wilson the volleyball, <laughs> eighteen and a half grand to a FedEx exec. Second fact is in nineteen ninety four, a FedEx jet suffered a hijacking attempt by a disgruntled employee uh, armed with loads of nasty weapons, uh, and the captain flew upside down to prevent a takeover. That's pretty cool. That's pretty. Did you see that movie? Um, Flight. Oh, Flight. Yeah, yeah, he did that. I mean, I thought that was a good one. And then the third fact is FedEx planes have anti-missile countermeasures and they're the only commercial plane to carry this. And uh, you can read all about that in the Northrop Grunman wiki page <laughs> because Northrop Grunman are anti-missile countermeasure extraordinaire, extraordinaires. So you need to um, have a read about that. But yeah, they have anti-missile. Uh, and, and what is an anti-missile countermeasure? I think it's a missile that fires back at the first <laughs> missile. If you see a missile coming at you, you've one that can intercept. I thought you were going to tell the one about the casino. Which one was that? Am I getting that wrong? It was Fred Smith, the CEO, who yeah. like literally they were down to their last million. Oh. The company was going to close down and he flew off to 
uh, Las Vegas. Really? And basically yeah, like I... doubled down 10 times or something and saved the business. You're kidding. I'm just going to read. I just Googled that there, Rory, when, when you said that. Call me out, Smith, uh, they were down to their last um, $5,000. Oh. And Smith flew to Las Vegas and played blackjack with the last of the company money and turned $5,000 into $27,000. Enough for the company to stay in operation for another week. So, uh yeah. That's pretty pretty impressive. <laughs> um, so that is FedEx, the company we never talk about. Um, Rory's actually written a daily insight about FedEx that you can read in my Wall Street app at the moment, as well as his thoughts on the habit being bought out and our January stock of the month, um, which is a really, really cool company. Um, let's move on now to Jargon Buster. So one question for this uh, week's Jargon Buster. It comes from Gustavo through the My Wall Street app. And he asks, what are the advantages Ericsson has over the likes of Qualcomm and Skyworks in the 5G race? So um, Ericsson is one of the companies on our the My Wall Street shortlist. Um, so why kind of have we picked them above other companies involved in 5G? To answer that, I think I'd like to just start by explaining a little bit about what 5G is and what it offers uh, over 4G. Because yeah. at this stage now, I think most of us consumers are kind of losing track. Yeah. We're just thinking, yeah, it's faster. But so, yeah, it is. And and so if we compare 5G to 4G, it has 10 times the connection density. It has 10 times uh, lower latency. Uh, it's 100 times the capacity and it's about a thousand times faster on data volume. Yeah. So definitely it is what most people expect. It just goes faster for more devices. Um, and I, I, I rang a friend of mine last night who is an industry veteran and he knows all about uh, 5G, 4G and everything that preceded. And, and, you know, trying to understand, I was curious, Just can 5G be done with a software upgrade? Mm. Like, is this something where you just send an, up, an update to all the server cabinets? And the answer very much is no. There's a lot of new antenna required, lots of ports, lots of new hardware, and then getting into the physics of it, there's new frequency bands and big loading, huge structural upgrades needed. And so it, it's nearly false to say it's just an upgrade from 4G. It's nearly a new technology in itself. Uh, yes, it's definitely a new standard. And and for us, the consumer, yeah, it's literally, I, I got a new 5G phone. But yeah. behind that, the T-Mobiles and Friends of the World have been investing hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in upgrading their network and uh, effectively building a new network. So yeah. it is a very, very big project. It's not just a flick to switch there now, Paddy, and we'll, we'll switch <laughs> on to 5G. So um, in the US in 2019, 4G accounted for 91% of all subscriptions, which is the highest share globally. And in the same year last year, 5G accounted for 1% of mobile subscriptions. And that makes sense. 5G isn't really out there yet. And it's expected that in 2025, so in five years from now, the number of subscriptions to 5G will be 74%. Okay. So it's not that 5G is going to be there this summer or next summer. It's slowly going to roll out. It's going to, uh, and then demands, demand will follow if you like the build it and they will come. Mm. So 5G will, will come out and so too will handsets and it will eventually be part of our lives. It's estimated that in 2025, five years from now, there's going to be an estimated 2.6 billion 5G subscriptions globally. And 5G is going to impact a lot of industries, uh, everything from drones, autonomous drones, uh, robotics and manufacturing and, and self-driving cars, IoT. The, the movement we're about to see now where machines effectively think for themselves is going to be powered by 5G. Okay. So that's 
I guess the first explanation of what is 5G and, and it's the internet of everything. Yeah. So um, the, the question that we got kind of was mixing oil and water and how does Ericsson, what does Ericsson have over the likes of Qualcomm and Skyworks? And, and when we positioned Ericsson, we weren't saying that they, they really aren't competitors. Like uh, in speaking to my friend and then other friends of mine who are, are very well versed on the industry, I asked them all to pitch to me what stock they believed would do best as a result of the rollout of 5G. Okay. And these... Uh, the crew that I spoke to all individually, so there's no group think, um, uh, I didn't bias in any way. I simply asked, of all the companies you know, which ones will most benefit from 5G? Yeah. And um, two of the five experts I spoke to independently said Ericsson. And for all the reasons that we we spoke about before, there's a massive capital outlay for new infrastructure. Huawei was one of, uh, someone else said Huawei, but we collectively acknowledged that the smoke without fire thing that Huawei had, it will take a long time to go away. Yeah, there's, so, there's a bit of extra baggage with Huawei. Yeah, there is. And, and I have it on good account that Huawei's technology is superior. Mm. Like, I, I, they're seemingly, I'm told, way, way ahead of anyone else, but they have this shroud of Political, political kind of darkness. By exactly, so Huawei is there, and besides, we can't buy shares in Huawei. They're not listed on a U.S. exchange. Ericsson was the choice of two of my other friends, and then Celnex was a name I never heard, and and it's a Barcelona-based uh, business that are effectively the European American tower, who are in kind of acquisition mode, buying up towers all over Europe and building out effectively an infrastructure network for all the all the networks to yeah. to tag onto. I still believe that American Tower offers us the best way to get gain exposure to this massive infrastructure rollout because as I said new antenna are required and these antenna they don't Expensive, hang off the clouds yeah. they got to go somewhere yeah. and then existing towers are where people want antenna no one wants or most people don't want to see new antenna being th- thrown up outside their window um so I think 5G is a, is a far bigger project than people might think mm. you know it's a multi-billion dollar multi-year rollout of new technology and and there will be many many businesses that are born from this technology, but at the core, the delivery machine of 5G is Ericsson and yeah. friends. And that's why at the time we chose Ericsson. And and I still believe that while Ericsson is probably flat or even slightly down since we added it mm. to our, our shortlist of, of great businesses, it's, it's staying the sun is yet to come as far as I'm concerned. I also would say just while I'm on a roll that Nokia, I think, has lost its way somewhat. Okay. Um, and they, uh, for a bunch of strategic reasons, kind of lost their way. But Ericsson uh, have really done very well at acquiring key parts of the business. So to the question from our listener, it's, it's complex. I mean, we could argue that some small drone manufacturer, autonomous drones, will be a big winner from 5G. They will, but really it's how far out from the absolute centre of the technology stack are you going in Ericsson sit in the absolute middle of it. Okay, cool. I uh, hope that helped, Gustavo. Um, right, we're going to do our elevator pitch now before we finish up. For this one, the first podcast of 2020, I asked you guys to pick the stock you think might be added to my Wall Street shortlist this year. Um, I suppose this is made easier by the fact that it's the three of us that choose the stocks <laughs> to go in, so you can't really be wrong. Yeah. But um, looking looking at the year ahead, what stock are you kind of, that's not on in the My Wall Street app at the moment, what stock are you most excited about? Rory, I'll come to you first. Yes, there's a stock I was looking at about 
three or four years ago now and I did actually spend quite a lot of time on it, looked at it quite closely and then I just kind of forgot about it <laughs> um, and mm. I ended up looking at it again there about a month or two ago and it's been a huge run and I feel <laughs> that it's heartbreaking. so heartbreaking yeah. um, the company is called RealPage RealPage yeah yeah it's a it's a software as a service company that um, serves basically anyone who rents out to tenants and not necessarily individuals we're talking big sort of rental companies and what they do is basically they give them everything you kind of need uh, in terms of business analytics uh, marketing um, accounting software, uh, being able to fill the rooms, keeping track of who's paid their rent, keeping track of how much you're expected to make over the course of the next year. Uh, it's still a very small company, even though it's been on a big run. It's a $5.2 billion company. And some of the reasons I liked it uh, originally, which are still the case, is that the founder CEO is still there after about 24 years. He still owns a huge stake in the company. I think something like 30% of the shares is still his. Uh, he runs it like a Swiss watch. The uh, revenue goes up at about 13 to 15% every single quarter. And they're expected to break the 1 billion mark, maybe not this fiscal year, but definitely over the trailing 12 months. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's a company I'm really interested in. I don't think, I think they're, they've, they've got a niche in the market that they've really grabbed. There's 17 million units being served by them at the moment. And yeah, I'm just sad to see it's, gone up so much <laughs> yeah. it'll definitely be on the watch list for the next 12 months Okay so that was the yeah. real page Emmett yeah. what company are you looking at coming into this year? Yeah Illumina is a stock I bought back in December 03 and I uh, had not the impetuousness of youth gotten the better of me It's uh, yeah, I wouldn't have dumped it I sold it about a year or two later and it's bet up a hundred fold since which kind of kills me <laughs> but Illumina um, I think I-L-M-N is its ticker if I recall uh, is a business it's in the business of gene chip arrays so it allows scientific businesses to to unravel and to sequence as it's known the genes of a living organism to see what in fact the constituent parts are, which is okay. obviously an extremely simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a simple, it's a simple business. Anyway, the business has more cash than debt, is because of its complexity and amazing return on equity, and I believe it's incredibly future relevant. Yeah, you know, we're in twenty twenty now. We still haven't really seen bespoke medication on a large scale. A lot of people have done twenty three and Me and Ancestry, and mm. for fun have seen their genes decoded, including myself and. That invariably went through an Illumina chip array, but I think the practical application of having your genes uh, forensically analysed are going to grow in the years ahead, and I think that this is the clear leader in the area. Okay, so one we'll be keeping an eye on. There is often a risk, though, investing in companies like that. Emmett, I know you've talked about before, like biotech companies, that are extremely volatile. Illumina is effectively a hardware and software company. Okay. It, it, It... builds chips with software to analyse what they've looked at. And okay. So it is, It is. but your point is still valid, it's an inordinately complex business. Like it's mm. really complex. Even understanding what the heck they do is, is in its own <laughs> right. I looked at the range of products there uh, last night and frankly I, I was like a chicken looking into a welly. There was just no... <laughs> abs- <laughs> have all the farmyard analogies today. <laughs>
<laughs> like a chicken. <laughs> so uh, with that, that's about it for this week's Stock Club. Um, don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of Stock Club, make sure to get in touch with us on Twitter. That's at My Wall Street HQ. Or email us at pod at My Wall Street. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. Um, That's it from us here today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.